spoofs and scams. I don't I expect if you're an internet person of any, um, been an internet person for any amount of time, you will have found that people try and aim spoofs and scams to you and send you letters that aren't really from the person that they're supposed to be. So you get something from, uh, that claims to be from your bank or from eBay or PayPal, which says, Dear valued customer, we have, observed, we have observing suspicious activities. And you think, is this really from PayPal or Barclay Card? Uh, sometimes I get letters that say, Dear Philip Wells, we have noticed on a particular date a suspicious withdrawal from your account. Once somebody took over £1,000 from my account, but it was rectified pretty quickly. But um, Can you spot the difference between those two? Would you know the real one from the fake one? Did anybody spot any differences? Adam ought to be able to tell us this, because he's a professional now, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. What should we look for? Yes, yeah, specificity. So this one, it, that's got a particular date. Um, some of the spoof ones have got the wrong date on them or no date at all. This one is actually addressed to me, so the person knows my name. This person doesn't know me and just guessing that I'm a valued customer. Uh, anything else in the wording there? Sorry? We have observing suspicious activities. It is worth reading the email carefully because... So often the ones that are not right don't have correct grammar. Uh, so it is worth looking at them. We have observing suspicious activities and not correct grammar. We, should, we have observed suspicious activities, might be. So you need to look for things. You need to look for things. And it is also sadly true in spiritual and religious matters that there are spoofs and scams. Just as you can get false emails which are not there to help you, but will really steal from you. Religions can be false. They're not all true. Uh, Jesus was very exclusive in what he said. He said, there is only one way to the Father, and that's through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. And even things with Christian on the label aren't necessarily the real thing. So I'm sorry to include this harsh reality, but not, don't trust everything that you hear that it claims to be spiritual, even if it's got a Christian label on it. What main points should we be looking for to distinguish between the real one that will help and the other one that's really just to, there to diminish us and steal from us? Well, we've been looking at some of the main points, and we looked at God, who is the one creator, and the one who rules everything, and the one who is Trinity, and the God who is good in his uh, moral, moral standards, and also good in the sense of his compassion and mercy. And we're looking currently at, so those the sort of basic ideas of what to look for in, in the message, what the message, the real message says about God. And now we're looking at basic points of what, about what the real message says about humanity. We saw last week that humanity was made in the image of God. And we're going to look uh, this week at the fact that humanity is lost in sin. And next week it'll be on, in the general area of human beings redeemed by Jesus Christ. So we're asking the question this morning, what does the message of God 
actually say and what does it actually say in this matter of human sin that's what we're going to look at so on this sheet which you might like to count down this is two out of seven up on there so you can see how it's going my statement is that all human beings are made in the image of God whether they are mums and dads, boys and girls single people, young people, old people they're all made in the image of God and all human beings are sinners as God the judge looks at us that's his verdict they're all sinners we all desperately need forgiveness and even if we're not conscious of it now our need will focus itself on the great day of judgment the great day of God's wrath which is coming up and if we're not conscious of our sin then we certainly will be conscious if we're not conscious of our sin now we certainly will be conscious of it then so in other words it's a problem of the present we are sinners but in a sense it's a bigger problem for the future so it's not just that we're perhaps feeling uncomfortable now with sin we may or may not be but one day each one of us will stand before the judgment seat of God and each one of us will have to uh, be declared either um, blessed forgiven or guilty and expelled into a situation too awful for words that's my that's the statement that i'm making this morning from the bible there is one exception and only one exception the only one human being uh, who certainly was the image of god but never sinned never asked for forgiveness and is himself the judge on the day of God's wrath, it's Jesus. And just in case you have a Roman Catholic background and you might have been taught that Mary was included, Mary's not included. In her song, she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my saviour. So she needed a saviour as much as anybody else. There is only one exception, which is Jesus. So here's the picture. Uh, Here's the, the, the theme of the teaching, that human beings are made in the image of God which gives them value beyond measure and dignity beyond measure and yet all human beings are sinful which means that they're all terribly in need of forgiveness C.S. Lewis put it rather well in Prince Caspian where he has uh, one of the characters in there say uh, of human beings you are of the Lord Adam and Lady Eve that is both honour enough to lift the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. And uh, I think C.S. Lewis, as he often does, put that really, really well. If you are a human being this morning, I mean, you are, so why say if, you being a human being this morning, uh, you have enough honour to lift your head made in the image of God but the fact that you are a sinner 
is shame to bow the shoulders of each and every one of us. So that's the, that's the position that I want now to talk about. So what I'll do is look at what the Bible says, and you can see whether you think that I've got the right end of the stick. And then I'll look at some objections, because you might be sitting there in your seat saying, don't agree with that, don't agree with that, that bit's wrong. So I'll try and look at some objections, and then I'll try and bring it to a conclusion. So I've got uh, a number of biblical statements, which I haven't counted, and five objections, and then a conclusion at the end. So that's what we're going to do. Are you okay with that so far? Yep, good. So let's. So you need your Bible. If you are reasonably confident with looking up pages, then you will find it worth making the effort. If it's just going to completely confuse you, don't bother, because I'll, I'll read it out anyway. And the first place we're going to look is in Matthew 7. Matthew 7. Uh, I think, yeah, Matthew 7. I'm looking in the wrong place myself. Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verse 11. Somebody give us a page number if you've got there. 971. Jesus is speaking about prayer. And in passing, he says, he says, which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven good, give, give good gifts to those who ask him? This is it in passing. You know how to give good gifts to your children. You're not, uh, you, 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 know, you do look after your children, most of you, by and large. And yet, he says, you being evil, though you are evil. That's quite striking that Jesus should say that. It's just as if, well, everybody knows that. Uh, you give good gifts to your children, well, you're an evil lot, aren't you? Uh, I find that really striking. Because Jesus is the most generous and um, compassionate person. And he doesn't just take pot shots at people for no reason, but he just says, you're evil. Uh, you all, the people that he's talking to, uh, verse 18, uh, a good tree cannot bear, I believe it's the same word there, evil fruit, bad. And the, the same word evil is in the Lord's Prayer, which is uh, a page earlier, chapter, five, chapter 6, verse 13, where he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So Jesus says that rather shocking thing. If you turn on a few pages to Matthew chapter 15, Jesus, this is chapter 15, verse 16, so it can only be just a few pages further on from where you are now. In Matthew 15, verse 16, Peter's asked him to explain a parable, and Jesus says, Are you so dull? Are you so stupid? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then comes out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come out of the heart, come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. 
For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean, but eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. And Jesus there is talking about their thought that you could contract guilt for sin by not washing your hands, so as if it's something that you catch on the outside of your hands. And Jesus says that's a very stupid thing to think because sin isn't contracted by, by you know, like um, bacteria that you could wash off by washing your hands. He says, no, it's something that's ingrained in the heart. From the heart, he says, this is the problem, from the heart come these things. It doesn't use the word sins, but they are sins, aren't they? Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are the things that make someone unclean. And Jesus seems to be quite categorical about this is the way the heart is. And again, I find it really quite surprising that Jesus should be so categorical so emphatic about human nature and the heart of sin. So let's dodge around a bit now. Let's go to the early part of the Bible. So go right back to the beginning. And we're going to look at the Ten Commandments. So Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. So when somebody's got the page for that, could they give us the page number? Deuteronomy chapter 5. 184, thank you. Now the Ten Commandments, or actually what they're called is the Ten Words in, uh, in Hebrew, they function as a basic plumb line and a ruler to, to equip us to measure the dimensions and the directions of sin. So rather like if you're on a building site and you wanted to work out where the doors and windows went, you, 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 I suppose you could just guess, but it'd be better if you got a ruler and went this way and that way and uh, you, could, you could get a, a measurement of, of things and whether it's the right way up. And these ten words function as a basic plumb line and a ruler uh, they're not the only plumb line and ruler, and I would say that they are not, you know, they, um, they're basic, uh, they're not the, the, the last word on righteousness, because I think Jesus is the last word on righteousness, but they're a basic toolkit for, um, for righteousness. And this is what they say. This is Deuteronomy chapter 5. So this is Moses gathering together all Israel. And he says to them that they've been taken out of Egypt. And in verse 6 it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's the introduction. And there are ten things that they're not to do. Number, uh, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below or on the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. 
And the third one is in verse 11. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, I'm only scanning through these, but what I want to say is the first four of them are to do with how people relate to God. And the first one is basically saying uh, you don't uh, replace God by anybody else. You have no other gods before me. That The God who wrote this, that's the one you should worship. You shouldn't replace him with anyone else. And the second commandment is saying that you're not to make up your own version of the true God. So you're not to say, well, we worship the God of the Bible, but he's like this. He's rather like a, a, a calf or a cow or an eagle or um, uh, something invented People do that nowadays, don't they? They say, I, I like to think of God as, you know, a, a great spirit or a, a great force or something like that. Uh, so and, and it's saying you, you don't have a different God and you don't make up your own version of the God in the Bible. And the third commandment says we're to respect God. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Unfortunately, some people do have a habit of calling on the Lord's name when they don't really mean to call on the Lord's name at all. It's just a, a habit of speech. And I, if people did that to me, I'd be very annoyed. But, uh, and, and I wouldn't like to say what God thinks of it. But uh, the, the commandment here is do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And the fourth commandment, Israel is told, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And uh, just putting that very simply, it's commanding us to have time for God, and it's also looking forward to the time when we will enter the ultimate Sabbath, and we will have rest with God. So the first four are saying things about how we relate to God, or how... Uh, how, how people are to relate to God. And then we follow on from that. Verse 16 says, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you. So it's res about respect for parents. And then verse, uh, verse 17, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, is respect for life. Verse 18, you shall not commit adultery, is to do with sexual faithfulness. You shall not steal, is the eighth commandment, which is to do with property. The ninth commandment, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, is to do with truth, and particularly truth in relationships. And the tenth one, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So that is essentially a command for contentment, not making yourself ill, wishing that you had things that other people have got that you haven't got. And as you can see, I've not quite copied what they've said, but I've enlarged on it because it invites enlargement. So here is the Old Testament uh, telling us the dimensions and rightnesses of relationship with God and with people. And 
Not to do that is sin. So I just point out that it's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? It's not only, it's worth noticing, it's not only saying how we treat one another, it's saying also how we treat God. And it's not only outward, but the, the final commandment is, to do, is very much to do with what we think in our hearts, the one about coveting. So although they're framed mostly in outward terms, if you think about it, if you use the plumb line and see what it's leading us to, it's really to do with inward, inward things as well. So, I don't know, what do you think? Do you keep all those? Do you think that if you put that plumb line and that measure and put it up against your own life and your thoughts... You'd say, yep, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. Yeah, yeah, all, all square and correct and everything. No sin there. Not only the, the Ten Commandments show us that actually we're sinners, but years and years of biblical history... And if you know your Hebrew scriptures, you'll think of the great heroes of biblical history like Abraham. You know, the, the, uh, the, the father of faith, the great example, if you like, in the sense of the leader and uh, great father of the Jewish race, uh, lied about his uh, relationship to his wife to save his skin. I don't know whether you know the story, so not without sin and Moses the great leader and framer through God of a huge body of laws and yet didn't do what God said in the matter of smiting the rock and was excluded from entering the promised land and David the the shining example of the king who committed adultery and had uh, his uh, had Bathsheba's husband murdered in a sort of by remote control way. Or if you think of the history of Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms when they split after the time of Solomon, and you think of what the, what the history of those two peoples shows, well, what it shows is you can privilege people a huge amount, but privilege doesn't mean that they will honour the privilege that they've been given because both Israel and, uh, in the end, Judah fell into idolatry and they broke the first command and the second command uh, and were excluded from the land. And you think in the time of Jesus, of the Pharisees and Sadducees, who were, uh, if you look at contemporary literature, you'll say, well, they were pretty good examples of their faith. But Jesus said, well, you're pretty good examples of your faith. But God thinks that you are rubbish at commending faith to other people. Jesus had some of his sternest words for these fine gentlemen. Uh, and that was looking at one particular uh, ethnic group. If you think of the other ethnic groups, well, 
they, they don't even begin to be counted as examples of righteousness. Uh, they just don't know one end of righteousness from the other, the rest of the nations. So I'm just saying, as the Bible looks at it, well, as Paul says in Romans 3.23, they've all sinned. The Jews have sinned in a particular way dependent on their heritage and history, and the Gentiles have just sinned anyway. All human beings sin and fall short of the glory of God, which is a terrible statement. That's what the Bible says. And the, the New Testament it is that spells this out in sort of teaching propositions and statements so as Jack read to us in Ephesians chapter 2 and Paul is talking to Christians so Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 somebody give us a page number for that 1172 1172 and again as he is going through in passing almost no no not that's not fair on him he's saying this is the way the plan of salvation works he's headed for the grace of christ but he does it by saying what christ has saved us from ephesians 2 verse 1 as for you you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And chapter 2, verse 3, all of us, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. And it is hard to grasp the weight of statements like that. It is such a strong statement. He doesn't say, some of you... We're a little bit handicapped by sin. Some of you were a little bit morality impaired. He says, all of you were stone dead in your transgressions and sins. Ah, dead, I mean, you lived, but you were living entirely immersed in a world of Disobedience to God, insensitivity to God, and um, well, that's what he says. You are dead in your transgressions and sins, and you were by nature objects of wrath. That's what you were. So those are the statements, and I could have brought loads and loads more, but I tried to pick a helpful selection, and I would like to say this in conclusion on these biblical statements there is such a thing as sin and I was pondering how, how much I needed to explain that and I don't think I need to explain it at all really, I don't think there's anybody in this room who doesn't know really what sin is who doesn't know really what it is to feel guilty for sin there is such a thing as sin and it affects all of us and it affects our inner thoughts that's where it starts and it's our outward words and actions is where it goes to and to say that it is actually far worse than we realize 
because the, the discipline of having to stop and think about this did make me stop and think about it and how little we consider the matter of sin we think of thing, whether things are fun or whether things are enjoyable or whether we'll make money or lose money we think about all those things but not very much do we think is this sin and it's far worse than we realize if you really want to know how bad sin is I don't recommend that you look at the Ten Commandments although that's certainly a good place to look if you really want to see how awful sin is and what terrible damage it does and what what it costs I suggest you look on the hill called Golgotha which means place of a skull where three people were crucified two of them who deserved they said exactly what they were getting and then the one in the middle who suffered so much that he called out my God, my God why have you forsaken me and the one in the middle who wore a crown of thorns and the one in the middle who had a robe put on him and was mocked and beaten and the one in the middle who bled and that one never committed any sin at all but he got what sin deserved and we may not know and we cannot tell what pain he had to bear but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there and the one in the middle shows us how bad sin is and if we think that sin is not that big a problem and not that much of an issue then why on earth did Jesus have to go through hell to save people from it? So there's the biblical statements. So I'd like to look at five objections. And you might be thinking these, or you might not. You might be thinking, he's got it wrong, he's being really negative this morning, because actually people are really basically good with just a few occasional evil people. So if you put a row of people, they're all good. Occasionally you get a Jimmy Savile, who was a, a notorious, undetected child abuser for many, many years. And you get the occasional sort of um, world leader like Hitler. But everybody else is basically good. So you might be thinking, come on, that's the way it is. To which I would answer... To which I would answer, yeah, there are certainly worse sins than others. There are certainly worse sins than others. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, Jesus, having preached and sent preachers to his local villages, this is Matthew 10, 15. I'm going to be, try to be quite quick on it, so if you can't find it, it doesn't matter. He goes to the local villages and they reject what they're hearing and Jesus compares them with the notorious cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and he says I tell you the truth it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment uh, than for that town it's interesting he's saying that you know they will come off worse and presumably he's saying you know their judgment is worse because if you weigh it all up their sin is worse than those people and the amazing thing is that the, the worse at the he says that he mentions Sodom and Gomorrah notorious for homosexual rape 
And he says, actually, it's worse for you, little villages, because of what you heard and what you rejected, and it was put before you so plainly, it'd be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for you. It's rather shocking, isn't it? But it does show that some situations are worse than others. And Jesus said to Pilate, specifically in John 19:11, the one who handed you over, handed me over, is guilty of a greater sin. So there are degrees of sin. That's certainly true. But please don't think that the Bible is saying that that matter of degrees means that some people aren't sinners. They're all sinners. It's just some are worse sinners than the other bad sinners. That's what it says. And I ask you, if you're saying people are basically good, I ask you, how do you see the world then? There are only occasional bad people. How do you, how do you see the world how do you see yourself? By what stretch of the imagination can you look into your own heart and say, oh yeah, that's pretty good. I'm pretty pleased with that. I know God's got, probably got slightly higher standards than me, but I'm, I'm pretty pleased. I can't see that he would find anything to find objectionable. By what stretch of the imagination do you think that about your own heart? Forget Jimmy Savile. Second objection. But our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. Our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. And again, let me commend you for your creativity and uh, the, the fertile nature of your imagination. Where on earth did you get this idea from? Where on earth did you get this idea from? Where on earth did you get the idea that your good deeds in inverted commas, are weighed up against your bad deeds. Whoever told you that? God never told you that. God never said anything of the sort. And if you think of the nature of evil deeds, evil requires cleansing. It's like a stain that needs bleaching away. And no matter how much uh, you clean the other bits or no matter how, how much paint you put on the other bits unless you can clean away the stain of sin it's, it remains what, what God says is that, that sins need atonement so where's the atonement in your good deeds and let me actually say that I am not at all optimistic that your good deeds are good enough by any stretch of the imagination. The Bible says, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. In other words, if there was a route by which sin could be dealt with by something that you could do, you know, a rule that you could follow, get up in the morning for five minutes, bow this way, and for 10 minutes, do this, and for 16 minutes, help somebody across the street. If there was any sort of rule that could achieve righteousness, then why on earth did Jesus have to die? It's an insult to Jesus for you to think that you can manufacture your own atonement by having the effrontery to say to God, here's some good deeds, they outweigh my bad deeds. 
Who do you think you are to say that sort of thing to God? By what right do you think you can stand before God and say, look at me? Objection three. Because you're quite a persistent person. But you say, no, no, no. There is surely a spark of good in everyone. It would be unchristian to say there's not a spark of good in everyone. And I say, I think I can see where you're coming from, but your theology is slightly askew. What we've got is the idea of the image of God which is ruined. So think of the castle. It is a castle. You can tell it's a castle, but it's a ruined castle. And I want you to think of this castle where every wall has got a crack in it, every door has got a split in it, every window is broken, and although all the things, well, perhaps are substantially there, not a single one of them is what it should be. And this is the, the picture that the Bible gives of human nature in the image of God, but spoilt in every part. So the creative faculty that human beings have. Yeah, they do have a creative faculty. We're made in the image of God, but the things that people make are not the way God wants them to be made. Our physical makeup, well, just look around at all the specimens of perfection we have here this morning. Um, if we were photographed, there would be a lot of scope for Aaron to get out uh, his um, what's the program called? Photoshop, Photoshop. and he'd spend years putting us all right. Uh, so we're, physically, we're totally affected. Our moral makeup—we do have a moral makeup. We know good and bad, but it doesn't work properly, do it? Does it? And the, the things that we know are bad, we still do them. The intellect, the bit which is supposed to dispassionately order arguments uh, for and against and make up our minds in a, in a dispassionate way. That bit doesn't work properly because we go for the bit that we feel, that we feel most akin to. And particularly when people argue about God, they don't argue straight. They argue from a, um, from a skewed position. And the bit of us that does choosing doesn't choose properly. There, uh, there's, there's no bit that works properly it's not the same thing as saying everybody's as evil as they could possibly be. Uh, the technical expression is total depravity. It means that every, not a single bit of the human makeup works properly. It's not saying that every bit is as bad as it could be as yet. And there's another bit of theology called common grace. I'm not sure that's a very good word. It doesn't really come across very well. It means God's general goodness by which he looks upon society and he holds us back from things that we might have done. I don't know whether you've ever had that experience. You think, oh, I'm just going to... And then something steps in to stop you doing that, stop you saying that or doing that. And in many ways like that, God's goodness prevents people from being as bad as they could be. People still do good in a sense, but it's never what it ought to be. And there is no part of the natural human makeup untouched by sin. So to say there's a spark of good isn't right. That's not what the Bible's saying. 
But, you say, I'm not going to let him get away with that. There are good, kind people. There are charity workers and there are carers. And goodness sake, there are missionaries and nurses. And uh, they're all, they do, they're good people. School teachers. Yes, um, school teachers. Well, I'll still put it in, uh, it's really sort of the same objection over and over again, isn't it? That by God's grace, people do do things that are good in a limited way. But interestingly, if you, one missionary was St. Paul, and you might put him down as a pretty good guy, and what he says about himself is, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. So he was conscious of sin inside him. And here's a picture which I think is helpful. We look at people's lives and we, we say, well, what's wrong with that person? You know, missionary, doctor, school teacher. And we look at their lives and it's like a ship that has wonderful sails and wonderful rigging and sets across the sea and you say, well, what could be wrong with that? It's going and, you know, it's, it's, it's doing a good work. Look at the way the sailors run the, the, run the, the uh, sails up and down. And you say, look at this ship over here, it's tatty. And when the captain says, run the, the, uh, the sails up, they delay and some of them pull on the wrong ropes and they make a bit of a mess of it. But look, this ship is a pirate ship. And not a single thing that they do is done for the king. And this ship, for all its tattiness, is the king's ship and things are done for the king. And I think that's quite a helpful illustration. This charity worker who does wonderful stuff, does it very, very well, very effectively, raises loads of money, helps a lot of people, for example. Is it done for the king? No. That makes a big difference. Fifth and final objection. And you might be thinking this. You might be thinking, yes, I know that lot of sinners. He didn't have to convince me of that. But when it comes to me, I've got a little uh, secure space that I go into and I retreat into that and this is surrounded by a wall which says my sin's not my fault those people sin those people are evil those people are evil but me? no doesn't touch me because my sin's not my fault it's my parents because I had such a bad upbringing I wasn't taught the right thing it's their fault or it's the family that I was put with and they never loved me and so on they abused me maybe or somebody who was close to me that did harm to me means that no sin is ever my fault that I commit or if you wanted to be theological you could say actually Adam's fault because Paul's told us that we're sinners because of Adam's nothing to do with me or you could even say it's actually God's fault he's incompetence because of and his negligence of the way he let my life go the way he let my life run that, that now we can, I can be secure in the fact that no sin I commit is my fault 
To which I'm going to say, there are things that have happened to us or been done to us. And the person who did them, they will pay the penalty, the price themselves. God won't let them get away with that. And the way that's affected you, God knows that too. God fully knows that. And God fully takes that into account. Fully. Fully. But. My sin is my fault. It is not my job to say, ah, this particular sin, well, that's, you know, that's why. I always, you can never rely on me to tell the truth because it's, it's somebody else's fault. That's how I've been. The only thing to do with sin is to confess it. The thing to do with sin is not to say, oh, here's the explanation for it, here's the sociology of it, here's the biology of it. The only thing to do with sin is to say, I was out of order. That was wrong. I should not have thought that. I should not have said that. The only thing to do with sin is to confess it. I'm going to say that we need the work of the Holy Spirit to do that properly. Because it is in the nature of sin to blind us so that we don't see the enormity of it. We don't even realize we're doing it. We need the work of the Holy Spirit. It says, Jesus says that he comes to convince or to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And as uh, people go out on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we need to pray that the Holy Spirit will convince the hearers that they're sinners in need of forgiveness. Let's close with this uh, picture, this story that Jesus told in Luke 18. And maybe, well, uh, have I convinced you of the truth of sin or not? I don't know. But Jesus says, here are two people. Here are two people that, that go up to try and meet God. Two of them. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Luke 18 from verse 9. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee, religious, religious expert, moral expert, written books on ethics, things like that. He knows the right thing to do. And this person goes up to the temple and he prays about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I am not a robber. I am not an evildoer. I am not an adulterer. I'm not even like the chap just a couple of yards away from me. Uh, thank you. Thank you for me, basically. Thank you for me. I'm okay, thanks. And the guy a couple of yards away is a tax collector. It's, a, it's an unhappy profession to be in in those days. Involved you in all sorts of uh, uh, compromises and temptations. And you'd think God would say, I oh, bit of a failure that guy and the man comes up to God and he says I've been convinced by the sermon this morning and I haven't got a single thing to say in excuse 
but I feel very much affected by all this. And he doesn't look up to God, but he beats on his breast and he says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. See, he's not trying to win anything or earn anything, say, but, but I, you know, I, I had no choice, did I? He just says, God, I was wrong. I need forgiveness for no good reason other than you are a merciful God. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, which of those two people went home right with God? And Jesus, I think to everybody's surprise, says it was that one. The one who knew he was a sinner and asked for forgiveness. And the Christian take on this is that there is not only the need for forgiveness, but the way of forgiveness and an achievement of forgiveness that Jesus died on the cross to do everything that was necessary so that somebody like me could be forgiven. I totally need what Jesus did on the cross. Which of those two are you? How will you go home? Let's sing together.